The Mourner's Bench is brought to you by Theolab, a media collective committed to creating a more candid dialogue about spirituality, culture, politics, and the world. Learn more online at thetheolab.com. What's up, good people? Welcome back to the Mourner's Bench. I'm Brandon Thomas. I'm KT. I'm Malcolm David. I'm Pastor Sam. And today, I'm going to work on speaking more slowly. On today's episode, we're talking about the qualities of a leader. We're also talking about how Donald Trump and or Trumpism has impacted our understanding of leadership, politics, and what it means to be a human more broadly. If you stick around, you'll also hear a conversation about how Christian, evangelical, religious leaders have been grooming us for Donald Trump for as long as we can remember. It's going to be a great episode. Let's get into it. So to get started, this is a really weird topic to discuss. Leadership is actually a pretty vague concept. We hear the word tossed around a lot. Leadership goes back to leader, which goes back to lead. And if you are looking for a definition of what it means to lead, options are to guide on a way, especially by going in advance, to direct on a course or in a direction, to direct the operations, the activity, or the performance of a group of people or organization. So that definition in and of itself is pretty neutral. Anyone can do those things. It has typically been easiest for me to talk about leadership by identifying individuals in my life who I have experienced as good leaders. Yeah, I think much of what I know about leadership has been honed in working for bad leaders. But I think that I learned a lot when I worked at an Apple store in North Carolina. And that shifted everything I learned from the church and the world in a way that I did not expect to learn from a retail environment. First of all, they hire for team. They hire for relationship. They hire for people who they know will fit with the employees who are already there. I learned very quickly quickly that I didn't have to have all the answers. No one did. That was the place where I learned I could ask questions. And I don't think I had ever known that I didn't have to have everything in my brain. And so that was helpful to me. And I think it also helped to empower this team focus. The managers worked just as hard as the people who were the salespeople or the tech people. The managers had their sleeves rolled up. They were out there for 12 hours or 14 hours on iPhone launch days. But they also taught us to play hard and to rest hard. And they were very much committed to developing people's skills in the areas that they knew they had skills in and the areas that we wanted to learn about. And they had great boundaries. And so really, Apple taught me about vocation which is the topic of another conversation, but the way that culture of that company works in a way that's authentic and vulnerable was really helpful for me. The person that is my example of a good leader is probably also the reason that I'm considered or called Pastor Sam. And that's my grandmother, born in 1916 in rural Alabama, never learned to read or write. She had a fourth grade education. She had 14 kids. She raised 12 that survived infancy to be adults, all have families. And in her old age, she stressed to her children and her grandchildren and her great grandchildren the importance of family. And she would tell us when we would go visit, y'all got to help one another. She would tell us, y'all got to get together, you know, spend time together. 
And, and it's the reason that my family is so close. My wife comes from South Africa and she has been observing the dynamic of our family and she marvels at how close our family is to be such a large family. She's like, it's not like this on the side of the world that I come from in the communities where I come from. And I really attribute that to my grandmother, Mary Frances Porter. Go grandma. When I first started reflecting on examples of, of good leadership, my mind initially went to prominent, national, well-known figures. And I think there are a lot of examples that, that could be lifted up there, both of really good and, and really bad leadership. But as I kept thinking about who would I name as sort of an exemplar or as a model of good leadership, I kept coming back to this really kind of funny point. I kept coming back to my high school band director. And that sounds kind of like a, a strange thing to say, but I grew up in in the public school system in South Carolina, a region that was kind of between rural parts of the state and the exurb suburb parts of the state. It was not in a context where the arts were really cherished very much or supported in any meaningful way. And our band director, his name was Bruce Dinkins. He was a Juilliard trained musician, this remarkably talented individual. And I will confess that I don't know a whole lot about how he landed at, at Irmo High School in South Carolina but he was there. And what made him such a remarkable leader, there are a couple of things that stand out. Number one, he was incredibly demanding. He expected us to be at our very best every day and every rehearsal, every practice, you had to show up. You had to work hard to make yourself better. And so he was very precise. He had extremely high standards. He used to say for every practice, early is on time and on time is late. You had to be there at exactly the right time. You had to show up. You had to work hard. There were moments where he would make us play the same line of music, you know, 20 or 30 times in a row to get it just right. But I think the other quality that sticks out for me is that he really helped us to believe in ourselves, right? I think he helped us really feel like we could be excellent. We could create something beautiful and, and meaningful and powerful, regardless of the context that we were in. And he was right. I mean, he created this remarkably successful program. We won the, the state championship 10 years in a row. We had a, a number of graduates who went on to attend some of the, the most prestigious music conservatories in the country and, and some of whom are now playing in you know, philharmonics. I mean, they're, they're professional musicians. And so he created this program really in a context where you wouldn't have expected it to emerge. And I think his ability to cast this vision for what we could be and call us to be our best selves and to work towards that. Yeah, as you were talking about your band director, I thought about a man who I love dearly, Clifford Strong. He was a deacon and the director of youth ministry at my childhood congregation. And he didn't do that job for a paycheck because he didn't get paid, but he was there because he loved Jesus. He loved children. And he wanted to ensure that every child in that congregation had everything they needed to flourish. It was his sole purpose and goal and reason for being at that church. Cliff was exacting, he was precise, he was demanding, and he was incredibly decisive. He set a clear vision for what needed to happen and what we were trying to accomplish, and he surrounded himself with folks who knew things he didn't. So, I mean, I think for me, that's another thing that made him a good leader. He knew his blind spots. He organized his team in a manner that addressed his blind spots directly. And while Cliff was clearly the leader, he never placed himself at the center. Oftentimes he was in the background and you may not even know he was there, but his presence was always felt. The other thing that I loved about Cliff and what I think made him a good leader is he wasn't afraid to go against the grain and to challenge whatever the norms were in a particular context. 
So my childhood congregation was and still is very black, very Baptist, very Southern, and very patriarchal. They still don't ordain women to any ministry at all, not deacons, not ministers. And that's something that breaks my heart to this day, but it's a reality around which they organize their religious perspective, which... I still try to challenge whenever I have the opportunity to do so. But with Cliff, it was intriguing to me that this was one of the few places where women were emboldened and empowered. I'm reflecting right now, every single leader that was on Cliff's team was a woman. Again, this church is deeply ingrained in sort of patriarchal traditions and wanting women to be silent and justifying that through scripture. And these women spoke freely, passionately, challenged him, told him he was wrong, And he was humble enough to hear that, to shift course. And so I appreciated this space that he created wherein folks who were silenced in other contexts were emboldened and empowered to speak and be themselves and be free in the context of the youth ministry. I could go on about Cliff Strong all day. He is one of my favorite humans. And I tell people to this very day that every single thing that I learned about being a leader, I learned it from Cliff Strong. The reason that I would call Cliff a good leader is because we knew that Cliff loved us. We knew that Cliff loved God or his understanding of God. And even if his expectations were unreasonable, even if his requirements felt outlandish, or even in times that we didn't agree with something that he said, we did it because Cliff was a good leader. Hmm. You know, I'm I'm thinking about, as you talk about Cliff, and Cliff sounds like a tremendous person. So Cliff, if you're listening, I want you to know, What I'm about to say, it's not about you. Cliff, if he acts crazy, I will come across this table and I will gut him. But specifically, when you're talking about just the the magnanimous leadership that Cliff had, to the point that that those who were following Cliff or under his influence, that they believed that he loved them. And you said even if they disagreed, even if there were things that they didn't agree with, they would still follow Cliff. And I think it's important that we define leadership around this table as we have this conversation because that could really describe infamous leaders Hmm. like Adolf Hitler. They brought people together. They convinced people to rally together for a common purpose (laughs) or a goal. Yeah. And oftentimes the the folks who were were under their influence believed that they had their best interest. They believed that they loved them. So while I'm not, I'm not trying to compare you to to Hitler, Cliff, but what do we do with that brand of leadership? No, you're exactly right. That's Donald Trump, right? Exactly. I mean, white folks voted for Trump because he told them that he loved them in his own little sick way. And some black folks. (laughs) And they believed he had their best interest in mind. So, I mean, I think you're exactly right. One of the things that was challenging for me as we were preparing for this episode, there's always an adjectival quality qualifier when it comes to leadership, corporate leadership, community leadership, church leadership, congregational leadership, servant leadership. There are all of these ways that we define leadership because in and of itself, leadership is generic. It's neutral. Our descriptions of good leaders included some characteristics, but how might we talk about that in more precise terms? What are the characteristics and qualities of those that we would identify as good leaders? Some of the characteristics of good leadership that I think are important are authenticity, vulnerability, the ability to empower others on a team to be able to utilize their gifts and to not only utilize their gifts, but to continue to develop them and deepen them. I think the ability to admit mistakes and perhaps that's authenticity. 
also this ability to rely on other people, that it's not just, you're not a leader by yourself. You have a group of people together that are seeking to achieve a goal. And I, the same I'm hearing your comment about Hitler in my, in my head, but good leadership relies on the people around you and uses a web of a community to get towards a mission, to reach a goal, to reach a common vision. That was definitely Adolf's. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he wasn't quite vulnerable. He I wasn't was vulnerable. Except the vulnerability. He sure never he admitted was, his mistakes. I'm not sure he was authentic But he definitely either. used the community and the team and the people and common goal and all of that stuff. Brandon, you were in Germany, you know. Maybe it's the authenticity and vulnerability that makes that different. I don't but know. But I mean, he was being authentically himself. He was an authentic asshole. So what is it that makes someone a good leader? When I hear you talking about your grandmother, when I hear you talking about your band director, when I hear you talking about folks at Apple and the culture that's established there, when I think about Cliff Strong, these aren't Adolf Hitlers from my perspective, but the way that we've described them to your point, Sam, we could ascribe those same attributes to Trump, to Hitler, and to all manner of folks who have led in ways that are quite destructive. Right. So then it gets in this layer of morality or covenant or I think about where I work now and the covenant that we have as a team, the values that we have established. So if I don't agree with the values that someone has, then I'm not going to follow them. So as a group, we're not just thinking about mission, we're thinking about values. Even as we're talking about pushing a little further, at the core of what we're saying leadership is, it's hard to separate that from these folks who are what we would say are good, like a Dr. King or John Lewis or Stacey Abrams, Miriam Wright, Edelman, William Barber, any any number of folks. I did just want to, I did want to make sure I wasn't just naming men. Thank you, uh, Katie. Uh, I am the only woman in the room, so that's my job. Mother Teresa, uh, I love Audrey Mother Lord. Teresa. Brandon has well, friends who are women. I'm naming women. Okay, just Aretha Randomly, Franklin. Aretha. No, I'm kidding. She actually was a good leader. Don't you come uh, for the queen. <laughs> I will gut you. <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is it's hard to ascribe certain characteristics to a type of leadership. So if we're saying, so Hitler may have been a bad person and had a bad agenda. But was an effective leader. But was a very effective and a very good leader. And that's why, like, bringing up Barber is important. He's thinking about this morality involved in it as well. But that's hard to, like, how do you come up with a common morality? So what I hear in this conversation is a question about telos, about the end goal, leadership to what end? And I do think that is, as y'all have said, that's a fundamentally moral question. I think the other thought that kind of keeps ringing around in, in my head is that there's just this very basic disconnect between what makes a person a good moral leader and then what's alluring about being in leadership. What draws people to leadership is that it puts you at the center of attention. It can pad your ego. It gives you power that you can enjoy wielding over other people. It can be fundamentally selfish. And I think a lot of people are drawn to leadership for those kinds of reasons. And I think the problem that we see so often around us is it's a conflation of leadership with power. And the latter, I think at its core is about perpetuating its own comfort and and privilege. I, I, I keep coming back to this kind of quip that my dad has made for a number of years that you know, we should only want leaders who themselves don't want to be leaders, right? We, we should want people who are 
unselfish and uninterested in the trappings of power to lead us. But there's this fundamental disconnect between why people are drawn to positions of authority of authority and then what makes them good authority figures. I don't think that leadership is actually only about power. It doesn't have to be, but oftentimes, and what we've seen in the last four years particularly, would be folks whose only goal in being leaders is to retain power. We see the demographics of the country changing. We see the demographics of the world changing around us. And so we have to ensure that we are in the position of power so that those folks can't control us. And I think that's part of what the last four years have done is it's come to a place where leadership is attached to power. And that's the end of leadership. That is the goal. That's the progression of the leadership that we've seen. It's not about creating a more just world. It's not about making sure everybody has health care. It's not about making sure that everybody has food. It's solely about retaining power for white folks. All right, that's a good spot for a break. Don't, don't try to take my run. That's so unusual. That's so Aretha Franklin. Aretha Franklin used to try to steal people's runs. Aretha don't have to steal nothing. When she got old, she was she would actually steal people's runs. That was she what she did. Not. No, That's she what Shirley Caesar does. Oh, Shirley can't do nothing she, no more. She tries to run. It's so funny. <laughs> she tries to run physically. No. <laughs> Last week, we put Paula White on the bench for her horrible attempt at summoning African and South American angels to intercede on behalf of the white supremacist occupying 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. In the last few weeks, we've talked a lot about Republicans and how they've ceded their authority over to Donald Trump. We've talked less about how religious leaders, particularly conservative evangelical pastors, have done the same thing. The challenge is... Our pastors, politicians, and the president, they are people to whom we would normally look for leadership. At one point, I would have said that Republicans and evangelical leaders have not provided leadership, period. However, I think the more accurate thing to say now is they have provided a very particular type of leadership that many have accurately called demagoguery. And perhaps it's Donald Trump who's the primary demagogue, and the pastors and politicians are what others have called sycophants. Now, that's a term that I don't use every single day. Uh, You should. I'm sick of it too. Everybody ought to be sick of it. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of them. I'm sick of it. Sick of it. Sick of it. No, but another way to talk about uh, that is an ass kisser. A Mitch McConnell? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, brown noser. But we have a bunch of folks who are kissing Donald Trump's ass for the sake of benefiting from the power that he has and the way that he exercises leadership. And if demagogue is a foreign term to you, demagogue would be someone who appeals to sort of racism, prejudice, stereotypes for the sake of retaining power, for sort of perpetuating fear and inviting folks to be their lesser human selves and making them false promises for the sake of retaining their power. That's been Donald Trump's goal. He wants power. So the question is, how have the last four years shifted our understanding of leadership when demagoguery has been the primary mode of of leadership? Um, And then those who we would hope would be leaders have been ass kissers. So here's the thing. I mean, I can't answer your question because the reality is that I don't think it started with Donald Trump. It started long ago. And I don't know how long ago it started. Maybe at the end of Eden. I just know. Like the garden? (laughs) Yeah, that garden. (laughs) Um, I know that I see this in the church all of the time. 
pastor after pastor after pastor who are manipulating people, mm. managing perceptions, using theological language and polity language to dismiss and delegitimize those who disagree with them. And so splitting, as you said, kind of drawing lines in the sand and putting people on the outside, all for the sake of retaining their power. I find very few pastors who don't do that. I think it comes from all of the projections that community members, that parishioners put onto a pastor. It goes unchecked because they're not self-aware enough or they're not in therapy or in spiritual direction to parse out what is real and what is projections from others. And so I think that the way we have managed a culture of leadership what we have become accustomed to for those of us who have been in the church has really made people fall in line with this person who's risen to power in the presidency. So I don't think it's a new thing. I don't know the past four years have taught me anything. Katie Ricks's problem with this is that nobody is checking this in the church. So Katie, that's an interesting point. One of the things that continues to be challenging for me is this reality that it is evangelicals, those who identify as Christians, those who identify as Jesus-loving folks who voted for Trump in mass. I don't know if you made this correlation, but the correlation that I made is there may be a way in which religious leaders in Christian context have actually been grooming the country yeah. for the type of leadership, for demagoguery, for, for, for Trumpism. Right, and it's not just evangelicals. Correct. Across all denominational traditions, yes. our religious leaders have been encouraging us to embrace this kind of leadership, but they've called it Jesus and said that it's because they love us and that we should love the Lord. Exactly. How would you say, can you give a... I mean, we get that they have for the listeners <laughs> who might be like, wait, I don't, I don't believe that. Like, maybe there's a concrete example. Is it the way that folks just prop up the preacher and agree with everything he says or are yes people and never push back? It's all the above. Yeah. So I worked for someone once who was trying to get me to tell a particular committee in the church back down. They were calling attention to some situations that were actually real. And he wanted me to manage perceptions is what he said. He wanted me to tell them a different narrative. And he said, you know, there's a fine line between perception and reality. And that was the point at which I understood where the difference in our understanding of life was because there was the Grand Canyon between the perception that he wanted them to think and the reality that there was. That's an example of managing not truthfulness, not reality, but trying to manage perception so people didn't think that he was in the wrong so that he could get the pastors always right pass. I studied religion in undergrad and after my first Old Testament course, I was pissed and I went up to my professor and I said, I do not understand why no one's ever taught me this. Because the first day of class, we're reading the creation story and she says, now what you need to understand is there are two creation stories. I said, the devil is a liar. There is one. <laughs> not in my Bible. And then she goes on to yeah. say, and they kind of contradict each other. My Bible what? is infallible. No there is no, this, is, this is holy. Huh? Nah, this is the Every holy Bible. Written by God's <laughs> my God. Huh? But I got mad because no one in my congregation, all these folks who love Jesus, never took the time to tell me that this simple contradiction existed. So when I went to preach my first sermon, I start to preach some of the things that I've learned in undergrad. I'm talking about creation stories uh -huh. and how the Bible has two and how they can inform our understanding of God in different ways. I'm talking about crucifixion in new ways. I'm talking about the limitations of bloody theology. And my pastor and other ministers are like, hey, Let's not do that. You don't want to say anything that makes people kind of question. They were preaching to folks to make sure that they kept coming and that they remained dependent on the congregation 
without letting them lean into that transformation by the renewing of their minds. The question that you've raised about whether evangelical and mainline Christian leaders have groomed us for this kind of destructive leadership that we see so often, I think I kind of want to flip that question on its head and ask what kinds of leaders are we individually and our culture more broadly drawn to? I say that not to try to explain away examples of demagoguery or poor leadership. I do think moral culpability still (laughs) lands at the feet of of people like Donald Trump and evangelical leaders who have organized their, their churches in this way. So I'm not trying to exonerate them. But I do also think that there is some culpability or some responsibility on the part of people who just want the simple answer. On one level, this is just like basic human psychology. We are drawn to the things that make sense to us. And when you begin to problematize them, when you begin to lean into complexity and nuance and difficulty and, oh, by the way, this might cost you something, people are turned off by that. And in some ways, that, that's just, that's our human psychology. That's, that's how our brains work. But on a larger level, I think that also means that we sometimes, as followers, as people in the pews, as voters, as citizens, you can extrapolate this you know, to a, a variety of different contexts, we want the simple answer. We want to follow the person who tells us the thing that we already believe is true. So I think in some ways our leaders have conditioned us for that, but I think it's a two-way street. I think we also have conditioned leaders to give us the 30-second soundbite that gets us excited, that makes us clap our hands, that makes us feel something in our hearts. That doesn't mean anything. But that still is the responsibility of the leader. The issue is it's the leader's role to help shape the desire. But we don't leave space for those kinds of leaders to emerge. We have structured our life together so that if you don't give me what I want from you, if you don't make me feel something in 30 seconds, then I'm not interested in digging in deeper. I'm not interested in learning the complex things that you have to say. And that's precisely why it's exactly like what exists in politics today, because not a single one of them, they're not willing to sacrifice their position and their power in order to do what is right. So if leadership is about sacrifice, the sacrifice is to give up all the projections. So if I'm a leader, it is my responsibility to enable the ambiguity to become a part of it. I have to open space for it. If I don't do that, then I'm shirking my duty as a preacher of the gospel and as a leader. If I am a leader and I am able to open space for ambiguity, people are going to follow because they know that the simple answers don't work. I'm not convinced that large numbers of people are drawn to that. Who cares? And I, and I, and I, don't, and I don't think that history would show us. But who cares? I think you have to care because all of these hypothetical situations get lived out in the real world. I'm talking about real life, David. I agree completely with the points that you are making. I personally am drawn to somebody who is willing to acknowledge ambiguity, is willing to say, I don't have all the answers, is willing to say, I need other people to step up and to help and to contribute. Somebody who can be authentic and vulnerable. The point that I'm trying to make is that I don't think that the vast majority of American citizens who voted in the past presidential election want that kind of leadership. I don't think that the vast majority of people who sit in church pews on Sunday mornings want that. I think that what we want, that what we have conditioned our leaders to give us 
is something that is simple and that makes us feel good. And so to me, the question is, how do we get more people who want the kind of leadership that you're talking about? But that's my point. It's the leader's responsibility, Malcolm. So yes. like, well, I think it's both. Hear me out. Leaders have conditioned us to want certain things. Now that hasn't happened only through and by churches. We live in social media culture. We live in a time where commercial breaks come more and more frequently. Twitter, 140 characters is all we have time for. Now it's 280. Facebook, we scroll past things that have see more. So there is a broader cultural thing happening that's inviting us all to consume shorter bits of information. I'm with you. There's a broader context in which all of this is happening. I'm merely trying to suggest as it relates to the leadership of Donald Trump and Republicans right now, I believe that there's a way in which religious leaders, Christian leaders, evangelical Christian leaders have played a particular role in conditioning us to accept that type of leadership. The truth is people stop paying attention. People start feeling differently. People are no longer as excited or invigorated or interested in complex, hard answers. What I meant with my comment earlier about things living in the real world, once you start going that route, it necessarily costs you something. You have to realize that people will stop paying attention. People will stop showing up. People will stop supporting you. That's, and, and that's, that's how- That's point. <laughs> that's, but and, I don't- but, so, but no, but, but, but so let me explain myself. So then who are you leading? When people stop showing up, when people stop listening to you, when people stop supporting you financially, you are losing people's attention and that is costly. And that means that you don't have the opportunity to lead and to affect change. You don't have the opportunity to lead in the same way. I hear you, Brandon, clearly talking about the role of leaders. It sounds like I also heard David saying, but those who are followers have some agency in desiring more complex answers. And and then I hear Brandon saying, yeah, but where do we place that agency if over time followers have been conditioned or groomed to accept this brand of leadership? Yes, they may have agency, but if this has been happening, as Katie said, this is way before Trump. If this is generations old. Uh, and we have through the church and through other organizations, other structures in our society, if we've been grooming culture and society to keep scrolling past read more to, to desire the 140 characters, then it still comes back to leadership. Part of doing leadership is doing the right thing. And that necessarily means that people are not going to like you sometimes. And so quite frankly, I think that's why pastors shouldn't be paid. I think that that's why churches shouldn't have Hold buildings. <laughs> but because ball. because that's not the reason why you're doing the right thing. But I, as a leader, it is my responsibility to do something else. One of the most beautiful things that's happened in this pandemic is what we've started to see is that we can't we can no longer use social media as a scapegoat. We can't say that Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram are shortening our attention spans because, because of the pandemic and the structure of our life together, we've been forced to figure out new and creative ways to use all of these platforms to achieve our goals. Howard John Wesley pastors, Alfred Street Baptist Church, a historic Baptist church, and he's started an Instagram, YouTube series called Can I Push It? And in this series, he's sitting there outlining at length things that we learned in seminary. What Howard John Wesley has done is he said, hey, this ain't Alpha Street. Because to your point, David, I think what he knows as a pastor or what I would assume he knows as a pastor is some of the things he's wrestling with 
pose a threat to his leadership in that congregation. So he starts off every episode by saying, this is me. This is Howard John Wesley. And I'm talking to those who want to wrestle with these kind of questions. He did a whole series on LGBTQ folks wrestling with different perspectives, different concepts, ideas, wrestling with scripture. He spoke in a very nuanced way, in a comprehensive way, in a complex way. And there was a risk associated with that. And the risk is, yeah, nobody's going to follow me. Perhaps it's the case that some of the people who were following him initially may choose to tune out. But people like my mother are tuning in. My mother has also been socialized. I have been socialized. My whole family was socialized in a congregation that desired simple truths and simple answers. But because we can't go to that same physical place that has restrained our spiritual formation, our theological formation, we've had to figure out other places to get that. And so if she can sit there and look for 20, 30, 45 minutes and then call me. I mean, my mother used the word homosexual to describe me. And I'm like, mother, when you say it, it sounds really bad. But she's now like, she, she came to me with the whole alphabet. She called me, Brandon, I just get so upset with how the LGBTQIA. I said, damn, girl, you got all the letters. Wow. <laughs> Come on. But I guess the point that I'm trying to make is, yes, it is risky to talk in more complex terms. It is risky not to ask kiss the person in the seat of power. Mm-hmm. And it's also necessary and if you do it and do it well, you'll find others that need that sort of leadership who will seek it out and that will be transformative for the culture and the world. How about a break? You would have made a great gospel singer if you were saved. <laughs> but ain't none of them saved. Are you saying the Clark sisters ain't saved? Oh, no, they are. Oh. <laughs> they got the Holy Ghost for real. That's Dorinda. <laughs> you got serious issues. <laughs> Jackie. <laughs> Man, the mouth made sure her girls would say. Listen, they love Jesus. <laughs> But, I, but none of the other gospel singers are saying None of them Not one Not one I agree I'm no, in agreement with no, you No not one <laughs> I'm in agreement with you <laughs> Like none of them are saying What y'all mean You're going to hell As we prepare to end our time together We've come once again Back to the mourner's bench Back to the altar Each week we invite Now we just sit people on the mourner's bench Those who need to be delivered And so the time is come The hour is nigh Is there one? Today, I'm bringing to the mourner's bench, Pastor John Gray. That's one of the that's one of the people I'm bringing to the mourner's bench. If you don't know Pastor John Gray, he's a pastor of, I think, Relentless Church somewhere in the Carolinas. He now consistently and almost routinely cheats on his wife mm. and at no point says... Wait a minute, how do you know he cheats? I mean, like, it's come out in public. Like he's, It's on the internet. It, I mean, not like a video of him cheating. <laughs> I don't, I don't want a video. <laughs> 
but he's like admitted to infidelity. And, you know, I, I think what's difficult for me as we talk about leadership, at no point does he say as a pastor of this mega church, you know, I need to deal with some things. I need to work some things out. Maybe I need to step away. Maybe I'm juggling too many things at one time. Like he is he is intent on maintaining power, um, on continuing to be the pastor and lead and influence people. It's like the third time now he has done something where he's been caught in being unfaithful to his wife. He needs to go under like cheating rehab. He needs to go to something rehab. They have cheating rehab. And it's so, listen. They do. It's sad because apparently some people, my brother, some people in my family think I look like John Gray a few years ago. He sent me a message and was like, hey, you look like John Gray. Now, I wasn't going to say it, but you do look like John Gray. Shut up. I'm not John Gray. <sighs> Who else? I'm going to put on Dean Browning, this Republican politician from Pennsylvania. This joker had a momentary identity crisis when he tweeted from his own account. He's, he's very white. Oh, Dean. Yeah. He's a white guy tweeted this. I'm a black gay guy and I can personally say that Obama did nothing for me and things have been much better under Trump. It got worse because they found the guy that actually was supposed to have had said it and they interviewed this um, black gay guy on TV. Who's like Patty LaBelle's cousin what? or something, isn't it? Or godson? <laughs> I've heard that, but, but what he proved to us is that he lacks authenticity and um, truthfulness and they've got multiple Twitter accounts. It's not just Russian bots that are trying to divide the country. They they are actively engaged in this kind of work. And so I could put all the Republicans on the bench, but I'm just going to put on Dean Brown. Dean Brown, you are on the bench, my dude, because that was real ridiculous. If you're going to have a shadow Twitter, at least like be diligent enough to check which account you post into. And then whoever you are in real life, Dan Purdy or Pat LaBelle's nephew, whoever you are, like don't come out here and support this bullshit. I don't know how much they paying you, bro, but sit your ass down. Seriously. I'm a black gay guy and I can personally say that Obama did nothing for me. My life only changed a little bit and it was for the worse. But I'm curious if Dean Browning wants to be a black gay man in real life. Well, that's the other question. Dean Browning, come to the bench and you can confess. Malcolm, who you got? I think the person who stands out for me this week is Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Uh-oh. Jesus. Uh, so Secretary Pompeo was asked in a press conference at the State Department several days ago if he thought Trump not acknowledging defeat uh, was actually going to hinder the work of the department yes. and if it would get in the way of a smooth transition of power and, and making sure that the work is still getting done. Mike Pompeo responded to that question by saying, and I quote, there will be a smooth transition to a second Trump administration. That's what he said. And then he kind of cracked this little wry smile. I would really encourage you to go and, and watch the video of it. Don't just listen to the audio, but watch the video of it. What was so galling to me is that smile because it communicated to me that he knows what he's doing is illegitimate and wrong. And for him to still claim the mantle of leadership but with zero of the responsibility that comes with that. I thought it was just really striking. Like he, he knows yeah. that what he's saying mm -hmm. is a lie. And that smile communicated that. There was something about that. When we're talking about leadership today, that small comment, just that smile really stuck with me as just a, a perfect example of what it means to try to enjoy all of the trappings of power, but not claim a bit of responsibility that comes along with that. Sycophant. And I'm sick of it. <laughs> <laughs>
when we talk about people who want to hold on to power, I'm also bringing a number of Baptist pastors who who are in the church, in the pulpit, uh, their pulpit for 35, 45, 55 years. Uh-oh, you're getting a little precise uh, there. You're getting a little precise. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> who may have led their congregations at the zenith of their ministry, mm. but now they are hemorrhaging members. Mm. And the doors are shuttering. They're not effective in their communities. The churches are dead and in closing, I'm putting all of them on the mourners bench because they all need prayer and they all need to know how to let go of power. You've just put all the pastors who've been in their churches for 30 to 50 years on the bench. That's what he said. We ain't got no yes. more pastors, do we? There because are we no sure more pastors. <laughs> and now the church is closed. It's going to close anyway. You know what? Today I am putting on the bench Ben Carson. <laughs> ben. Gifted hands. <laughs> is, do we have a quarantine bench? <laughs> ben, ben was just diagnosed with COVID. Ben, so he got to be away from the other. You got to be in a plexiglass from the mourner's bench by yourself. <laughs> so I hear Ben, oh Ben, that you've been diagnosed with the COVIDs. And so I'm inviting you down to the altar to pray for your healing. But I'm praying for a threefold healing. Come on, come on, you Baptists. I'm praying first, first that you be healed of your COVID-19 in the name of Jesus. In the name of Yeshua HaMashiach. Oh my Big God. Door. Second, I'm praying that this season of COVID-19, mm-hmm. the season in which you're positive, would begin to pull you out uh, of, heal you from uh-huh. your comfort in the sunken mm. place. Come on, come on, come I'm on. I'm flashing oh, my yeah. cell phone Preach flashlight Bishop. in your face Preach because Bishop. you've been in the sunken place far too too long and we need you to come out out. being around Donald and his cronies has made you sick in your body Uh we need you to come out come out out of the sunken place come out of white supremacy come out of hood come out of that foolishness and third and finally I'm calling on the spirit of Herman Cain Herman come on and sit on next to me on this bitch because Herman rest in peace Mm -hmm. you know good and damn well well. just what white supremacy will do to you because you're in your grave my God and so sit next to Ben and tell him what's about to happen. <laughs> we just took y'all to the black church in case you was wondering. <laughs> but the third healing is that he be transformed by the renewing of his mind. Please, Ben, oh Ben, once you get out of the sunken place, stop drinking that white woman's tea. That's a wrap for today's episode of The Mourner's Bench. We'll be back on Thursday with an intimate conversation between me and KT. If you're liking what you hear, go ahead and hit that follow, that subscribe button, and leave us a review in Apple Podcasts. If you have questions or concerns or would like to hear us talk about something on an episode, send an email to what's up at the theolab.com. Thank you so much for listening. We value your time. We value your ears. We'll see you on Thursday. You're going to hell.